Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not going as planned. A week into the conflict, Vladimir Putin's forces had failed to win the quick victory he was hoping for. Russia's been hit by unprecedented new economic sanctions. But Putin has also issued dark threats that he's putting his nuclear forces on standby. To understand how the war in Ukraine may evolve, I'm joined this week by Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London, and author of books such as The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy and The Future of War. So what's gone wrong with Russian strategy in Ukraine? And how is Putin likely to react? Vladimir Putin's made a series of bizarre television appearances from the Kremlin during the course of this crisis. But none were more chilling than when he released a film of him ordering Russia's military leadership to put the country's nuclear weapons on standby. I'm ordering the Minister of Defence and the Chief of the General Staff to put the strategic nuclear forces on special alert. The reaction from Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary-General, to Putin's nuclear threats was firm. This is dangerous rhetoric. Uh, uh, this is... This is uh, uh, a, a behavior which is irresponsible. And of course, if, we, if you combine this rhetoric with what they're doing on the ground uh, in Ukraine, uh, uh, waging war against the independent sovereign nation, uh, uh, conducting full-fledged uh, uh, invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, uh, this adds to the seriousness of the situation. But how seriously should we take all this? Later in this podcast, Lawrence Friedman will give us his views on the dangers of nuclear escalation. But I started by asking him about his recent statement that the point about wars is that they rarely go according to plan. Well, most wars don't go to plan in that uh, the initial campaign comes sometimes across unexpected opportunities, but more often against unexpected pitfalls. This one has gone spectacularly not to plan because it was based on some fundamental misconceptions right from the start. It's a combination of Putin's imagined Ukraine, which lacks a national identity, isn't a real country, is ruled by, use his phrase, drug addicts and Nazis, and a curious arrogance amongst the Russian high command that believed somehow the forces they were facing were quite weak, that they could not make the sort of elementary military preparations, for example, by getting control of the skies and just charge off towards Ukraine and Kharkiv and other cities and take them with relatively light forces. So the adage that no plan survives contact with the enemy has been proved to be more true than ever in this case. And yet, possibly, we're still in the early stages of the war. I think most analysts I've seen still think that Russia will eventually achieve its basic goals, taking the major cities. Well, I think that's in doubt now. I mean, you know, we have to be very careful. I don't think it's necessarily in the early days of the war. I don't think this war can go on indefinitely from Putin's point of view, especially 
given the economic sanctions. But, you know, things have a habit of dragging out. And if we get into a sort of a, a lower level insurgency, it could go on for some time in that form. But I think he has real problems now taking the cities. Because even if you get people in them, as we've seen from a number of social media postings, that's not the same as actually exercising control. So, you know, they're not going to be chased out of Ukraine. They've suffered enormous losses of equipment and people. Their advances have been stalled, but there's a lot of military might there. But actually getting into the cities and having got in holding them, that's still going to be extremely difficult. And I think they're starting to get some appreciation of that. Presumably because, you know, that stemmed from the initial miscalculation as well, that the, the population would essentially either welcome or at least accept an occupation. And if you're trying to occupy cities and the whole country uh, long run with only 200,000 people, a country you know the largest in Europe other than Russia itself, presumably that sounds like an impossible task. Yeah, they don't have the numbers for a full occupation. They're fighting for, actually in territorial terms, for a relatively small chunk of land at the moment. It's, it's critically important in some of the places it is, and certainly the capital. The, the, the point about the initial days of the war is it allowed uh, Zelensky the chance to mobilize his people to provide extraordinary leadership. You now have a, a popular militia in place and ready to go, and a really angry population. So all of this makes the tasks of occupation even harder. And you can see this in those uh, towns where they have been able to go in, where there hasn't been serious military resistance. Civilians are shouting at them and they look extremely uncomfortable because these are you know, youngsters who didn't expect to be in this role, not quite sure what to do next. And it's not clear the quality of the orders that they have been given. And and this is a largely conscript army, isn't it? Uh, conscript reservists, some really professional types as well. I mean, we assumed this was a, going to be a very professional army, and it turns out it's not as professional as we thought it was. And yet there's always been this fear, which maybe we're beginning to see realised, that if frustrated, Putin would resort to very barbaric tactics, the kind of scorched earth tactics that were used in Grozny, in Chechnya, in Aleppo, in Syria... Some people thought he would go for it immediately. Where do you think we stand on that? Is that horrible prospect still likely? Well, first, I mean, clearly there have been some atrocious attacks on civilian areas. It's not carpet bombing and it's not scorched earth. And some of it has these sort of claims, which is sort of valid, about attacking administrative buildings and so on. But you don't win wars by attacking administrative buildings. Did your papers, there's got a good story about how the administration is going on without these buildings. I think that's one of the issues that they're wrestling with themselves. Uh, I mean, the casualty levels are awful, but again, this isn't a blitz. I think what you're seeing, moment is a lot of sort of improvisation and ad hocery, varying from different cities. I mean, the Russians are in a better position in the south, although still not as good as many would have expected. So I think you're going to see a, a variety of different approaches. I don't think they've got a clear enough strategy yet about what they're trying to do with this. I think one of the fears is that there's essentially going to be a siege of some sort. So they'll keep people cowering in shelters under bombardment while food and medicines run out, power goes. I mean, I think that's possibly a bigger risk at the moment. But as I say, I think there's something very ad hoc about uh, Russian tactics at the moment. And how much uh, aid do you think the West can plausibly get to Ukraine 
particularly if they do settle into this kind of siege effort. You know, the, the West is already, uh, even Germany is supplying weapons now, but they'll also have to supply food, medicines. Do you think that kind of thing is possible? Well, I think getting food and medicines in will be essential. I mean, the Ukrainians have got quite a bit of captured Russian equipment as well, but anti-tank weapons, air defence weapons in particular, are going to be important. The issue is making sure they're not interdicted by the Russians as they go from sort of the border with NATO to the main areas of fighting. And you also have to keep in mind that that area around Lviv, for example, isn't particularly affected yet. There are places where the Ukrainian army could reform and the Western support and supplies can be important to a sort of a reformed Ukrainian force that establishes itself closer to the NATO border, which is a good way to think of it, I think, and uh, still poses problems and challenges and difficulties of occupation for the Russians. Some of the military experts I spoke to before all this began, who were generally pretty gloomy about Ukraine's ability to resist, placed great emphasis on the fact that the Russians would quickly secure control of the skies. Has that happened? And I suppose one indication that it might have is that they have this huge column, apparently, outside Ukraine, which is not being attacked from the air. Yes. The lack of air war is one of the peculiarities of all of this. And it may be, you know, it uses up a lot of fuel to fly lots of sorties. They may just not have thought it was necessary, maybe part of the original arrogance. As we've seen, the Ukrainians do have air defence weapons and they've used them. They don't have a great air force themselves, but they seem to have dispersed a lot of their aircraft so that they weren't caught on runways and, and, and so on, some were. It's a peculiarity of this campaign. If you look at the big American offensives, which you know tended to get in trouble because of insurgencies, not because of the original offensives, there was sort of a methodical quality about them, about taking out the air defences and establishing control of the skies before you did much else. Uh, and this hasn't been done, and it's caused enormous problems. Now, obviously, Russia has a range of weapons, and President Putin referred to the most threatening of the lot quite early on when he made a pretty uh, clear, if not explicit, threat that this could turn into nuclear war. How seriously should we be taking that? Difficult to say. Given the way that Putin has been behaving so far, I don't think this is something to be trivialised at all. In some ways, this is one of the most dangerous situations we faced, probably the most dangerous situation we faced in Europe in that respect of major war since 1945. The wars of the former Yugoslavia were awful, but they didn't quite come into this category because you didn't have a nuclear power fighting and drawing attention to its nuclear capability. That being said, I think it is largely deterrent. He referred to his deterrent forces. As he launched the invasion, he warned against foreign interference with a sort of hint that major war was what he was talking about in, in, in a nuclear sense. They've moved their alert status sort of up a notch, but they're still not on a war footing. So I think it's largely deterrent, to some extent perhaps a, an indication of his frustration. But it is a warning, and it's meant as a warning, that, you know, when people talk about sending in NATO aircraft to impose no-fly zones and so on, that's effect a declaration of war on Russia, and the consequences could be grim. The people I know who are worrying about this talk mainly about tactical nuclear weapons. I guess, in the popular mind, nuclear weapons are still bombs dropped on cities, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. 
So explain to us what tactical nuclear weapons are and whether they fit into the way that Russia thinks about war and how they could feasibly be used. So tactical nuclear weapons, which is, is a misnomer, are essentially nuclear weapons to be used in battle. And Russia has a lot of those. It takes them quite seriously in their doctrine and military preparations for a major war with NATO, for example. It's hard to see how they're particularly useful in this situation, even if the Russians were so inclined. I mean, they're not short of artillery if they want to blast places. I mean, that's basically what they're relying on in, in some ways at the moment. And you irradiate the areas you're supposed to be liberating. So it's not clear, and I don't think that's what Putin was referring to. I think what he was referring to was the more strategic role of deterrence to remind NATO countries not to get actively engaged in the war. And yet, obviously, given the catastrophic nature of this, even if it's a small chance, it's something that Western policymakers would have to think about. So how do you think they will be thinking about avoiding getting to the stage where we escalate to a potentially nuclear conflict? I just don't see it. Escalation to a nuclear conflict would require the risk of complete battlefield defeat by a massed Ukrainian army that was pushing against the Russians. That's not going to happen. I mean, the, the, the problems the Russian army is facing are, are of their own making, of running out of fuel, of abandoned vehicles, soldiers surrendering, and so on. I mean, that's their problem, not that the Ukrainian army is going to push them back. So you don't have the targets that would, would make it worthwhile. And NATO has made it clear that they're not actually going to try to institute a no-fly zone, which incidentally would have a, make a marginal difference for the reasons we've discussed. And no artillery zone would make a difference, but that's not what they're going to do. So I think it's very hard, actually, to work out a pathway to escalation, other than if you, you know, you people sort of imagine a crazed man. That's, that's a different prospect, which none of us can work out. And I think even then, if one looked to... to the faces of the Russian defence minister and the head of their armed forces, as Putin made his, his sort of alert announcement, and I think they're desperately keen on going in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe I've been speaking to too many catastrophists, but one of the people who does take this quite seriously said to me, we have to think about Putin's mentality and the possibility that he believes what he says, that he believed that Ukraine was... Uh, you know, run by Nazis, and that he believes what he says when he says that NATO is a threat to Russia, even though we, none of us really think that. And if he thinks that, then maybe it might justify him to escalate. And it reminded me of the early 1980s, when there was the famous Abel Archer incident, when the West suddenly realised, based, I think, on intelligence, that the Russians really thought they might be about to be attacked themselves. Are those dangers of misperception there? Look, they're always there, uh, and you have to take account of them. And again, you know, one of the problems throughout this whole crisis, and why some of us were amazed when Putin took this step, which was clearly not going to end well for him even before he started, was the state of Putin's mind. I mean, it's very hard to work out. He does believe, as far as one can work out, this is a country run... I mean, Nazis is an all-purpose term used by the Russians for anybody who they think is a Ginnon. Uh, so it, it, I don't think he's, he's using it as a precise analytical category. But he certainly believes it's been captured by the wrong sort of people and that NATO is against him. And the Abel Archer exercise you referred to was when, as a result of President Reagan's rhetoric, the Russian leadership at the time convinced themselves, or some did, particularly the KGB, 
that the next NATO exercise would be used to launch the real thing. And they had all their intelligence people looking for signs of it. But I think, again, this is still a different situation. So, of course, we should watch carefully. And, you know, I don't think we should, in effect, declare war on Russia ourselves. But given the way things are going, I still find it hard to imagine that at the moment should be our prime concern. And I mean, you obviously, a large part of your career was during the Cold War. You studied all the nuclear deterrents back then. What lessons do you think we can learn from nuclear deterrents during the Cold War? And are those lessons reassuring or not so reassuring, given how close we came a couple of times? Well, they're basically reassuring because in the end, we avoided nuclear war. And in the end, we avoided a clash between East and West. Uh, so in, in that sense, nuclear deterrence worked. And the areas where it didn't work or came close not to work, the things people worried about, were things like early warning systems malfunctioning so that you thought you were facing an incoming attack when you, when you really weren't and started to retaliate on you know, sort of Dr. Strangelove-type scenarios. But in the end, it depended on avoiding getting into a conventional war between East and West, and, and that we did. So, you know, the, the legacy of that, which I think is still pretty powerful, is when people think about war between major powers, they still think of, of an almost immediate escalation to nuclear use. And that itself has, has had a deterrent effect. It's why people are cautious, why people before this conflict talked about a grey zone where uh, cyber attacks and information campaigns and so on took the place of war because uh, nobody wanted to get into too dangerous situations. So nuclear weapons still, by and large, make people cautious. And I don't think we've reached a stage in this conflict, with all the caveats about the state of Putin's mind, where that's going to change. So that's an optimistic point, at least. Well, it's not a deeply pessimistic one. Well, as as far as worst-case scenarios go. You know, that's a note of relative optimism about how high or low the risks of nuclear war are. And I mean, obviously, one has to be careful about sounding optimistic amidst what is a horrible tragedy with a lot of suffering. But if we return to where we began, the idea that Putin has pretty well failed, that we can see that even now. Do you think that the long run consequences of this conflict could be quite positive in the sense that Putinism fails, and that could be good for Ukraine, could be good for Russia, indeed for the world. Well, I think the world would be a better place if Russia wasn't ruled by Putin. One has to be very careful about getting ahead of ourselves. There's still a long way to go before we know the actual outcome. It's just not going to be what Putin wanted at the start. I I think this will most likely end at the ceasefire talks, and there will be some document which will give some sort of assurances to Russia in return for them removing their forces. But it's not hard for the Ukrainians to promise not to be Nazis or not to develop their own nuclear option, for example. But I think it is the case already that the sort of aura of power surrounding Putin has been badly dented. You know, he he warded quite well for Putin from the the Second Chechen War, which in effect brought him to power and enabled him to win the presidency in 2000 to, I mean, in his belief, possibly the annexation of Crimea, the bloodying of Georgia in 2008, turning Russia into a Middle Eastern power with Syria, with the support of the Assad regime. He's done okay out of military power, but it's been used 
Somebody doesn't take risks, but it's, they seem pretty calculated risks, whereas this is a very poorly calculated risk. And once you lose this sort of aura, seems to me the best word, of competence and ruthlessness and effectiveness, then you, your position is in trouble. And, you know, the Russian economy is taking the most enormous hit, and it's going to take a long time while he is in power to recover from this. And the oligarchs and so on are well aware of that. So... I would have thought his days in power will be numbered, but you know you need a very good insight into the inner workings of the Russian elite to know quite how that will eventually work out, and I don't think I quite have that. That was Sir Lawrence Friedman in London, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when, if I can, I'll be taking a short holiday and a colleague will be standing in for me. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.